Hello, I'm Rolf Fontanelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast online at schwepp.net. Episode 66, Astrology, Politics, and Platonism in the Early Empire, The Case of Thrasyllus. Back in episode 61, we talked about the theme of the stars and the state, looking at the early Roman Empire, the period known as the Principate, and the central role played by astrology and astrologers in imperial politics of that era. We also made a promise to return to one curious figure who appeared in that episode, a certain Thrasyllus, and talk about him some more. As the ineluctable cosmic cycles have decreed, the stars are now right and it is time to keep our promise. So who was Thrasyllus? Tiberius Claudius Thrasyllus was probably from Alexandria, and he was a Greek, or rather, presumably he was Greco-Egyptian, but a speaker of Greek. Now he grew up as Thrasyllus, his mum called him Thrasyllus. The Roman Tiberius Claudius part of his name came later, as we shall see. We don't know when he was born, but sometime around the turn of the millennium, give or take, or much about his early life. Even the idea that he was from Alexandria is actually not directly attested in the sources, and it's a surmise, but it's quite a probable surmise based on the type of philological editing work that he was engaged in, and more on that later in the episode, which is the kind of work that Alexandrian academics specialized in in this period. In fact, Thrasyllus is pretty much a mystery until he appears on the stage of Roman history on the island of Rhodes, right at the beginning of the first century CE. Now, we don't have a major single source for his life, but the details can be sifted out of a wide swathe of Roman materials. Particularly important are Tacitus, the great Latin language historian of the first and second centuries, Cassius Dio, a second and third century Greek language historian of Rome, and Suetonius, the first and second century tabloid biographer of the first 12 Roman autocrats. Suetonius is particularly wonderful because he includes all kinds of sex and violence, and also loads of divination, prophecy, and of course, astrology is reported by him, which makes him a very useful source for the astrological beliefs of the Principate, though you have to take everything he says with a massive bag of salt. Dio is very credulous about astrology and very into it, which makes him a useful source as well. Tacitus, as we shall see, takes a more uncertain line toward the astrological art, though he clearly believes that it functions. These three are the main sources for this episode, and some of the key stuff they tell us about Thrasyllus will appear in the bibliography, but we aren't going to cite every single reference from these authors because it would just be too detailed. Interested readers should go to the primary texts, particularly Suetonius, who, if you haven't read him yet and maybe think classical history is a bit stuffy, will set you straight. So, Thrasyllus appears in our author's on the island of Rhodes, in the company of Tiberius, a gentleman who would later become the second Roman emperor. Tiberius was in Rhodes because, having married Julia, daughter of the emperor Augustus, his life at Rome had subsequently become a nightmare of political intrigue, and he'd retired or been semi-exiled to a lavish villa in Rhodes to wait until things cooled down. Now, Rhodes was a center at this time for Hellenic education. 
from the Hellenistic period right up into Roman times. Posidonius of Apamea, the late Stoic philosopher whom we've mentioned a few times in the podcast, taught here, hence he's often called Posidonius of Rhodes. And earlier, Barossus, another name which keen listeners may recall, had set up a school of some sort on Rhodes as well. Barossus was a Chaldean, a expert on astronomy from the Near East. And since we know a bit about his teaching activity, is often accorded a major role in the transferal of astronomical stroke, astrological knowledge into the Greek world from, let's call it, Babylon. These are two names important to the history of Western esotericism. But the point is that Rhodes was a place to go to get an education. And we're told that Tiberius was there studying and surrounding himself with intellectuals. So he's in exile, but he's making the most of his exile by improving his mind. Now, before we get on to the wonderful anecdote of how Thrasyllus entered the life of the young Tiberius, let's say a few words about astrology in the Roman Empire at this point. We saw in episode 60 and 61, astrology entering first into the Roman Republican lower orders, then it became something more of a gentlemanly pursuit in the late Republic with people like Cicero and Varro and their friends. And in the time of the empire, it really became a central ideological force in imperial political life, both as a tool of imperial power and as a potential threat to that power when used by opposition forces, either to oppose the imperial system as a whole or to oppose a particular emperor. As Kramer, the author of Astrology in Roman Law and Politics, puts it, quote, beginning in AD 2, with an initial period of transition, the unquestioning acceptance of astrological dicta by the rulers and the leaders of Roman society continued at least until the end of the first century, and with somewhat diminished intensity until the end of the Principate. End of quote. Now, Kramer is only interested in astrology in his book. Quotes like this perhaps give the wrong impression as though everyone was just running around doing astrology in the highest reaches of government. But there is no denying the presence of astrology in our sources in a number of crucial political contexts. First, there were the court astrologers, which many of the early emperors definitely had, and perhaps all of them had, though for some we don't have any direct evidence of this. See episode 61 on these gentlemen. Then there are the repeated state injunctions against astrology and astrologers, also discussed in that episode of the podcast. We have evidence that it was standard practice among the Roman elites to seek out a natal horoscope whenever a child was born. Although it may be that this is something of a literary trope, it, it definitely happened, but how universal it was as a practice, I think we can't really say. We have other evidence of high-level astrological science going on in our period, and even going on in Latin for the first time, from the reigns of Augustus and Tiberius. The long scientific poem Astronomica, by an author traditionally known as Manilius, was dedicated either to Augustus or Tiberius, scholars disagree as to which, which allows us to date it to the early Principate. Now, the Astronomica is not an astrological handbook, but rather a long didactic poem laying out the theory of astronomy, which includes a great deal of what we would call astrology in it. So high-level cultivated poetry by someone who probably knew the emperor in question, devoted to the science of the heavens. Then we have Tiberius's nephew and adopted son, Germanicus, who, in his spare time, made a Latin translation of Aratus's astronomical work, 
the Phenomena. So Aratos was a Greek writer on astral matters, and uh, Germanicus took the time to put this into Latin, bringing Greek astral science into the Roman sphere at the same period. These two works can be adduced to indicate a really strong interest in celestial phenomena and their divinatory significance among the upper echelons of the early empire. Now, one of the reasons the emperors kept court astrologers was so they could draw up horoscopes of potential rival claimants to the Roman imperial authority. These could then be dealt with before they had the chance to rise to power, right? So this was like preventive astrological assassination. Now, this kind of preemptive astrology raises serious questions about what model of fate is being used here. If someone is fated for the imperial purple, then surely they're going to become emperor, whether you like it or not. Even if you try to kill them, you won't be able to because that's their fate. But as we have seen already in the podcast, there were numerous competing ideas about how fate worked in antiquity. And according to some models, you could sort of work around fate in various ways so as to let it run its course, but in the way you wished it to run its course. In this context, a little aside from the historian Tacitus is very interesting. As an example of the kind of thinking about fate which was going on in roughly our period. Tacitus is from a, a bit later period, but uh, it's the same sort of thought world. He's just been discussing Thrasyllus and Thrasyllus's powers of predicting the future. And this inspires Tacitus to give the following comments. Quote, For myself, when I listen to this and similar narratives, my judgment wavers. Is the revolution of human things governed by fate and changeless necessity or by accident? You will find the wisest of the ancients and the disciplines attached to their tenets at complete variance. In many of them, a fixed belief that heaven concerns itself neither with our origins nor with our ending, nor, in fine, with mankind, and that so adversity continually assails the good while prosperity dwells among the evil. Others hold, on the contrary, that though there is certainly a fate in harmony with events, it does not emanate from wandering stars, but must be sought in the principles and processes of natural causation. Still, they live us free to choose our life. That choice made, however, the order of the future is certain. Nor, they maintain, are evil and good what the crowd imagines. Many who appear to be the sport of adverse circumstances are happy. Numbers are wholly wretched, though in the midst of great possessions, provided only that the former endure the strokes of fortune with firmness, while the latter employ her favors with unwisdom. End of quote. Now, those who deny fate altogether are, of course, the Epicureans, about whom we haven't had much to say in the podcast. The second lot who maintain that, quote, though there is certainly a fate in harmony with events, it does not emanate from wandering stars, but must be sought in the principles and processes of natural causation, are of course the Stoics. Now, Tacitus then turns from this sort of philosophic survey to the ordinary folks of his day, and has this to say about them, quote, with most men, however, the faith is ineradicable that the future of an individual is ordained at the moment of his entry into life. But at times a prophecy is falsified by the event through the dishonesty of the prophet who speaks he knows not what, and thus is debased the credit of an art of which the most striking evidences have been furnished both in the ancient world and in our own. For the forecast of Nero's reign 
made by the son of this very Thrasyllus, shall be related at its fitting place. At present, I do not care to stray too far from my theme. End of quote. So we shall return to the son of Thrasyllus and his prediction about Nero in due course. But note what Tacitus is saying here in this passage as a whole. There are different theories about fate, sure. I don't know how it works, but one thing is for sure, astrology works. If astrology goes wrong, it's because the particular astrologer was a fraud or whatever. Note too that Tacitus puts this idea into the heads of most men. We don't want to be too absolute here, but we should nevertheless take notice that belief in fate was really common in the Roman Empire of his day. A number of really interesting tombstone inscriptions have been found of people who'd been promised long life by astrologers and then died sooner than they were supposed to, and the inscriptions sort of tell you about it. These pissed-off final messages would only have existed if people had been consulting astrologers about their fated lifespan in the first place. Here's a gladiator's tombstone. Quote, I warn you all, your planet is hurrying. So what this means is, time flies, don't think you have all the time in the world, something like that. Your planet is hurrying. Back to the quote, don't trust Nemesis. That's how I was deceived. End of quote. So Nemesis is presumably an astrologer who's told this gladiator he has years to live and he's going to triumph in the arena in the event the gladiator is cut down and the executors of this dead gladiator went to the trouble of putting in this bad review to um, try to make sure Nemesis didn't uh, deceive anyone else. Now, this widespread belief in fate would change. This is an important point. The two most prominent intellectual currents of late antiquity, late Platonism and Christianity, both deny the kind of absolute deterministic fate which followers of Stoicism or seemingly the Greco-Roman man in the street of the first century believed in. And this brings us to an interesting point. We might expect that astrology would die out with the rise of Christianity, right? We have indeed very strong polemics within early church writers against all forms of divination, and astrology comes under attack for precisely the, the technical reasons that we're talking about here. Astrology implies a deterministic fate, or at least the most prominent model of Hellenistic astrology does, and Christian ideas about salvation necessitate that humans have free will, because if humans don't have free will, then God is a tyrant condemning sinners who had no choice in the matter of sinning. They were just automata who were made to sin. So we undoubtedly have strong condemnations of astrology in Christian writing. Does this mean astrology will die out in late antiquity along with the widespread belief in fate we've been discussing? Absolutely not. In fact, astrology still hasn't died out, as many of our listeners may have noticed. But in antiquity, there is, in fact, a major tradition of Christian astrology, as well as Jewish astrology. And this presents something of a puzzle for historians. The 4th century astrologer Firmicus Maternus presents a perfect illustration of this. Firmicus Maternus wrote two works which survived, our earliest surviving astrology for dummies, introductory text sort of thing in Latin, which gives the basic procedure for drawing up a chart and how the whole system works, standard Hellenistic astrology, but in Latin, and a virulent pro-Christian 
anti-traditional religious diatribe in which he calls for the destruction of all the pagan temples and this sort of thing. Now, these two works from the same pen have led some scholars to postulate that Firmicus maybe wrote the astrological book and then had a conversion and turned over a new leaf and went all anti-traditional. But much more likely is that Firmicus is an example of a phenomenon very common to medieval Christianity as a whole. Astrology found a modus vivendi in the new religion of Christianity, even though some of the church fathers condemned it. Obviously, one's theory of fate had to be compatible with Christian salvation teachings if you were enough of an intellectual to think about things like fate. And if you were doing astrology, you probably were. Or maybe you thought the stars were signs of God's will rather than causes or whatever. But anyway, the point here is that going into late antiquity, we will see a marked decline in ideas of fate and in the philosophies that upheld them. Stoicism is the classic example for all intents and purposes. It disappears by the end of the third century, never to return, but without a corresponding decline in astrological practice. Oh, and the podcast will return to Firmicus Maternus in due course and have a closer look at this strange man with specialist help. Now that was a long and interesting digression, or at least we found it interesting, but let's return to Thrasyllus. Somehow, Thrasyllus met up with the young, semi-exiled Tiberius in Rhodes. However this actually happened, maybe in an academic setting, maybe not, we have a great story about how they became friends, two different versions of which survive in Suetonius and Tacitus. Tacitus's version is longer. Tacitus tells us that Tiberius was into astrology, and he used to ask different Rhodian astrologers to visit him at the highest part of his villa on Rhodes. Note that uh, the term villa in Latin doesn't just mean a, a kind of country house, it means a whole estate. It can mean a whole estate. So the highest part of his villa could itself be some nice building overlooking the sea or something like that. So these visitors would be led along a cliffside path by one of Tiberius's freedmen. If the consultation went well, fine, they would be led out again the way they came in. But if Tiberius suspected either fraud or incompetence on the part of the astrologer, the freedmen would push him off the cliff on the way back down after the consultation. Nice. Now, when Tiberius summoned Thrasyllus for consultation, and he didn't yet know Thrasyllus in this story, the following scene took place. Quote, Thrasyllus then, introduced by the same rocky path, after he had impressed his questioner by adroit revelations of his empire to be and of the course of the future, was asked if he had ascertained his own horoscope. What was the character of that year? What was the complexion of that day? A diagram which he drew up of the positions and distances of the stars at first gave him pause. Then he shows signs of fear. The more careful his scrutiny, the greater his trepidation between surprise and alarm, and at last he exclaimed that a doubtful, almost a final, crisis was hard upon him. He was promptly embraced by Tiberius, who, congratulating him on the fact that he had divined and was about to escape his perils, accepted as oracular truth the predictions he had made and retained him among his closest friends. Nice little story. We also have a different story from Suetonius, which is worth quoting in full. This takes place right before Tiberius is about to be recalled to Rome to be adopted by the Emperor Augustus against all odds, since all of Augustus's children and other relatives 
have inconveniently died or been useless or otherwise not been up to the job of becoming emperor. So Augustus was forced to settle on his sort of 15th choice Tiberius. Here's Suetonius on the various portents, which let you know that Tiberius was going to be emperor after all. A few days before his recall, an eagle, a bird never before seen in Rhodes, perched upon the roof of his house. And the day before he was notified that he might return, his tunic seemed to blaze as he was changing his clothes. It was just at this time that he was convinced of the powers of the astrologer Thrasyllus, whom he had attached to his household as a learned man. For as soon as he caught sight of the ship, Thrasyllus declared that it brought good news. This too, at the very moment when Tiberius had made up his mind to push the man off into the sea as they were strolling together, believing him a false prophet and too hastily made the confidant of his secrets, because things were turning out adversely and contrary to his predictions. End of quote. So elements of the cliff of doom uh, theme exist in both tales, but in different forms. But in each case, we see Thrasyllus impressing the emperor to be by the success of his prognostications and becoming his close confidant as a result. Now, these stories are just that, stories. Nevertheless, we have lots of more sober evidence attesting to the fact that Thrasyllus did become the emperor's confidant and in fact became his teacher in astrology. He followed him to Rome and thereafter frequented the imperial palace. Suetonius has the three men, Augustus, Tiberius and Thrasyllus, dining together and enjoying cultured banter over dinner. From Augustus's death in 14 CE onwards, the show was of course run by the emperor Tiberius. And we hear from Tacitus and Cassius Dio that Tiberius learned the art of casting horoscopes from Thrasyllus and practiced it throughout his life thereafter. Here then, we not only see astrology at the heart of imperial power, but we can even put a name and some dates to its being there. We don't know if it was in Rome or beforehand on Rhodes that Tiberius conferred the coveted Roman citizenship on his friend Thrasyllus, but we know it happened. And Thrasyllus would take Tiberius's nomen and cognomen, which was the custom, becoming Tiberius Claudius Thrasyllus. Their friendship was such that the orator Themistius, writing in the 4th century, cited it as a sort of classic example of a famous friendship. The newly influential Thrasyllus was married to one Princess Acca of Comagene, which was a Roman client state in modern-day Turkey near the Syrian border, a sort of rump of the Hellenistic realms that would soon be absorbed into the Roman Empire proper. But he was moving up in the world, marrying a princess, obviously. We know that he had a son and a daughter, and that was probably from this union, though we can't be sure of that. And we know that the son went on to become a central player in astrological power politics as well. Now, we identified the son Balbillus in our episode on the stars and the state in the early empire as court astrologer later, thus making Thrasyllus the founder of a kind of mini dynasty of imperial astrologers behind the throne. But it's worth pointing out here that this identification isn't entirely watertight, and not everyone accepts it. Harold Tarrant, whose book on Thrasyllus is the standard work, has called it into question, for example. Basically, there may have been two Belbili, or people called Belbilos, frequenting the court. However, we saw Tacitus referring to a son who later made astrological predictions about the Emperor Nero, which came true. Now, whether or not this son of his is the same guy as Balbilus, 
whom we hear about as the astrological advisor of the later emperors Nero and Vespasian or not, is perhaps not of pressing importance. His son, at least we know, whatever his name was and whoever he was, went on to make well-known astrological predictions. Now, we've been concentrating on Thrasyllus, the astrologer, and the imperial power player, and there's much more that could be said here about his doings in the crazy family strife over the secession to Tiberius in the latter's old age, but Thrasyllus's name can't always be connected with these kind of insane family quarrels, so we'll leave it there for now. We love the bloody gossip of the Roman imperial elite as much as the next guy, but we need to stay esoteric. So what was so esoteric about Thrasyllus? A number of things, it turns out. Now, the question of whether or not astrology should be considered esoteric in the Roman context is a valid one, which we've already considered a little bit in the podcast. Roman astrology certainly was carried out with elements of the esoteric in some cases. While the astrologer's craft was widely seen as a branch of astronomy, or even as simply applied astronomy, as we might consider engineering to be applied physics, or something like that, astrological authors often presented their ideas as hidden wisdom of a higher nature. Uh, To take one example, Vettius Valens, an astrologer of the 2nd century, explicitly presents his work as knowledge to be jealously kept from the purview of the uninitiated man in the street. That being said, Manilius's book, which we mentioned earlier, is presented by the author as a work of high science, not written for the vulgar crowd, but also not a priori to be hidden from them either. So there were esoteric and exoteric approaches to astrology in the Roman Empire. We actually don't know which approach Thrasyllus took, as his astrological works do not survive, though they are cited by Valens and Hephaestion of Thebes, so we know that he had a readership centuries after his death. In other words, he was a serious authority on astrology, not simply a favorite of the emperor Tiberius. Kramer notes that certain astrological theories, namely the Thema Mundi, the Heptazonos, the Doctrine of the Twelve Places, and the physis or nature of zodiacal signs and planets, which for a long time were thought to be much later than Thrasyllus, can confidently be ascribed to his work, based on detective work of later authors who cite him. So we don't need to assume that any of this was original to Thrasyllus, because he was a link in a tradition which, as we have seen, went back to the mid-Hellenistic period, and the vast majority of which is lost. However, The fact that big names like Valens and Hephaestion cite him goes a long way to show that he was, whether an original thinker or not, a well-respected transmitter of Hellenistic astrology. As we shall see shortly, he was also a player as a philosopher. But before we get to that, let's have a quick look at his other more esoteric interests. Um, He wrote a couple interesting lost works. We know of a possible arithmological treatise cited by Juvenal but the reference in Juvenal is a bit vague, and I think it might just be referring to astrology rather than anything specifically arithmological. It is nevertheless pretty certain that Thrasyllus wrote things in the Neopythagorean arithmological vein because, now buckle up for a bit of text within texts here, because in Porphyry's biography of Plotinus, written sometime toward the end of the 3rd century, Porphyry quotes Longinus, a contemporary 
philologist and critic about Plotinus. So Longinus, as quoted by Porphyry, is writing about Plotinus and maintains that Plotinus holds Pythagorean views. Now, there's quite a bit of speculation about what this might mean exactly, but we'll get to that later in the podcast. And that Plotinus's Pythagoreanism is far superior to other Pythagorean writers, such as Numenius, Cronius, Moderatus, and Thrasyllus. Now, what exactly was involved here is uncertain, but it's probably fair to attribute to Thrasyllus some combination of some or all of the following elements. Standard Middle Platonic identification of Pythagoras as the founder of the great tradition of philosophy, some kind of arithmological theorizing, a one, and possibly also a dyad, as primary principles of reality, the, the, the ultimate reality, and that sort of thing. This is the kind of esoteric doctrine with which the name of Pythagoras had become firmly associated by this time, as we saw in episodes 47 and 48 of the podcast. So, Thrasyllus the Neo-Pythagorean, then, may also have written a lapidary, a book on the occult properties of stones. But unfortunately, this does not survive even in fragments. But there is one work of this Neo-Pythagoreanizing Middle Platonist philosopher of an entirely different character, which survives until today and in the most absurd and unexpected place. I refer, of course, to the works of Plato. If I open my first volume of the Oxford University Press standard edition of Plato's works, my heart is immediately warmed by the fact that the title page and the notes and everything else that isn't Greek is in Latin. So our Latin title page reads Platonis opera, skip a bit, then Tomus primus tetralogias primam et secundam continens. So the works of Plato, book one, containing the first and second tetralogies. Now what, you may well ask, gentle listener, is a tetralogy when it's at home? Well, this is a Greek word originally going back to the dramatic festival of Dionysus at Athens. So at this festival, each playwright, and these included like the big names whom we still read today, like Euripides, Sophocles, and Aeschylus, as well as their less renowned contemporaries, all of these playwrights would present a tetralogy of four plays for the yearly competition. Three tragedies followed by what was called a satyr play, which was a kind of erotic farce uh, for letting off steam after many hours of doom-laden tragic heaviness. No tetralogy actually survives from antiquity, although we have all three tragedies from Aeschylus's Oresteia cycle. The satyr play attached to those called Proteus only survives in a single fragment. So we know there were tetralogies, they were the normal form for doing drama, but we don't have any of them. Now what does all of this have to do with Plato? We should note here that in Hellenistic Alexandria, an editorial industry had arisen. Important works like Homer were written down in critical editions for the first time in Alexandria in the starting from the 3rd century BCE, with all kinds of newfangled stuff like accent marks to aid pronunciation and things like that. This was the birth of what we might call ancient literary scholarship. As the Greeks slowly developed a literary canon, they were concerned to publish standard readable editions for an ever-expanding literate public, and Alexandria stepped up to supply this market. So by the 1st century CE, 
Plato too had become a literary classic, and Thrasyllus, apparently working alongside a colleague called Derkylides, produced a standard edition of Plato divided into tetralogies of four dialogues each. We know from the doxographical tradition that other arrangements of Plato's works were in circulation, but for whatever reason, maybe just as simple as imperial patronage, Thrasyllus's edition is the one which has survived, and this is fascinating for a number of reasons. With almost any other writer, modern scholars attempting to put their writings on a critically edited footing would attempt to impose a rational or at least a neutral order on them, perhaps alphabetical by title or something along these lines. But the traditional authority of Thrasyllus's tetralogies has been so great that all the major editions follow the manuscripts in preserving them. When I open my Oxford critical edition of Plato, I get tetralogies one and two. The arrangement of the tetralogies has nothing whatsoever to do with the chronology of Plato's works as imagined in modern scholarship, nor indeed much to do with the ways in which modern scholars interpret Plato thematically. But we still organize Plato's work tetralogistically. Well, why is this significant? First of all, the obvious point of significance, which will not surprise listeners to this podcast perhaps, but might come as a surprise to many a philosophy student, is that the father of all Platonic textual scholars was a Neopythagoreanizing astrologer. Good. But what else? Well, for the full story here, check out Harold Tarrant's book, Thrasyllian Platonism, which gives every scrap of evidence about our guy, the fine-tooth comb treatment, and extrapolates pretty boldly based on what we know to what we might surmise. It's often assumed that something like a complete works of Plato had existed in circulation from the time of the early academy or thereabouts. But as Tarrant points out, there's actually no evidence that this was the case at all. Doesn't mean it wasn't the case, but it does seem unlikely that there was such a thing as a complete Plato widely available before Thrasyllus's time. And it may be the case that Thrasyllus was key not only in organizing Plato into tetralogies, but in just getting his works out there as a whole in the first place. Thrasyllus also gave the works secondary titles, which seemingly was a new thing. So the Phaedrus, for example, becomes Phaedrus, or On Love. So here we have a fairly significant editorial intervention. Thrasyllus is telling readers what he thinks the main theme of the dialogue is. Now, no one's going to deny that a central theme in the Phaedrus is eros, or love, but as readers or listeners to episodes 33 and 34 of the podcast will know, there is a lot more going on in the Phaedrus than just love. Well, Thrasyllus started a trend here, as we shall see when we approach later Platonists and the ways they read Plato like Iamblichus, or the anonymous prolegomena to Plato's philosophy, which show up in late, much later antiquity. In these cases, each dialogue is seen as having a scopos, or a kind of central aim, and is to be read as such, according to its scopos. And indeed, Tarrant argues that the reading curriculum found at Diogenes Laertius 3, 48-66, this is Diogenes Laertius gives a model for how you, the order in which you might read Plato's dialogues, Tarrant argues this is probably based on a suggested curriculum of Thrasyllus. If this is indeed so, then Thrasyllus was way ahead of his time here as well, since in late antiquity, the curricular style of reading Plato often introduced 
by first reading the preliminary purification mysteries of Aristotle, and then modeled on the greater and lesser mysteries of the Eleusinian initiation. This became a dominant approach. This is how the late Platonists tended to read Plato. It was a, an initiatory journey that had to be graded appropriately. Now, another significant point here is that Thrasyllus had a philosophy of his own, of course, which Tarrant valiantly tries to unearth. Unfortunately, we probably can't say much more for certain than that he was some flavor of Neopythagoreanizing Middle Platonist. Tarrant finds more specifics, which do check out his book if you're interested in, but while he pushes the evidence to 11 in his quest to figure out what a Thrasyllian Platonism might have looked like, he nowhere engages in fantasy, and he has indeed come up with some startling evidence like the Logos Doctrine to be found in Porphyry's commentary on Ptolemy's harmonics, which we can probably attribute to Thrasyllus, which is very interesting. However, there is one wonderful and intriguing bit which we have to cover here before calling a close to our investigation of this gentleman. This is the strange case of the second Platonic epistle. Now, listeners to episode 36 of the podcast and lovers of late Platonism more generally, know that Plato's most mind-bending dialogue, the Parmenides, was read as a metaphysical treatise by late Platonists. So far, so good. Put the Parmenides to one side for a moment. We also know that, aside from the dialogues, there are a number of Platonic letters which survive, purporting to be the actual words of Plato himself in his own voice. Some of these are obviously later fabrications. Others are almost universally accepted as genuine, and there are a few, like the crucial seventh letter, which will provide material for heated arguments among Plato scholars until the end of time. But the second letter is a fascinating case. It's definitely in the not-by-Plato category. It's pretty universally rejected as being by someone obviously steeped in Neopythagorean ideas, so clearly not Plato himself, and so much later than Plato, but how much later, no one can really agree. All right, so the second letter is a Neopythagorean forgery. It has long been suggested that Thrasyllus himself might have been the author of the second letter. Tarrant revives and supports this claim. Now, the second letter has the famous King of All passage, which is a beautiful piece of blatant esotericism on the part of the author, and which would seem to invite a threefold reading of metaphysics, a tripartite metaphysics, or as Tarrant has it, a tripartite metaphysical reading of the Parmenides. In other words, Thrasyllus, if he is indeed the author of the second letter, was looking at the Parmenides through a kind of interpretive lens more often associated with the 3rd century CE than the 1st. He was being Neoplatonic, basically. If this is true, it continues a trend which keeps happening in the scholarship of Middle Platonism, where ideas long thought to be typical of Neo or Late Platonism are found fully developed in the 1st century in authors like Philo of Alexandria and now maybe Thrasyllus. Now, vis-a-vis -vis Plato, best or worst of all, Terence suggests, Thrasyllus may have corrected Plato. Tarrant is not the only scholar to suggest that Plato has been corrected. Many scholars deny Plato's authorship of whole swathes of dialogues generally accepted as genuine, but even on the majority view, the majority view being that most of what we know as Plato's dialogues really were written by Plato, 
minus the usual suspects like the epinomis. There are many folks who suspect tampering here and there of one sort or another, and Thrasyllus is a main suspect in this inquiry. We won't go into the details here, but interested readers can follow this up in Terence's book or in our suggested reading section. All of this adds a nice extra layer of trickery to Plato's already tricky corpus, does it not? And one can't help but think Plato, if he were alive to see it, would nod sagely and say, see, this is exactly what I told you would happen. That's why you should never write down your true doctrines. Some Thrasyllus will come along and edit them. Well, that is all the time we have for Thrasyllus. He may be a sort of obscure figure, but he's also an incredibly important figure. And if we had more of his writings, we'd probably consider him a central thinker in the tradition roughly known as Middle Platonism, and also a central uh, practitioner of esotericism at the heart of Roman power, which is very interesting. However, in the next episode, we are going to travel just a bit later in the first century and begin a series of episodes on a much more important thinker than Thrasyllus. This is another Middle Platonist, but this time one far from the seat of power in the early empire. I refer, of course, to one of the most influential writers of antiquity as a whole, the transmitter of Hellenic and Roman lore to the Middle Ages and beyond, and an author whose deeply esoteric approach to religion, philosophy, and hermeneutics is often shamefully overlooked nowadays, but was a major vector for the transmission of Greco-Roman esoteric Platonism to the later Western traditions. I refer, of course, to none other than the great Plutarch of Charonia. So join us then, and in the meantime, stay very esoteric. Mm -hmm.